Hi everyone and welcome to the first episode for 2022 of a new series in our Class Action Fireside podcast. This is a series of discussions that the National Herbert Smith Freehills Class Action Team brings to our audience where we break down some of the headlines in the developments in the jurisprudence and practice of class actions in Australia. And we draw from the experiences of senior members of a national team who are at the front line of these cases that are making law across the country at the moment. Um, for, for those of you listening who wish us to deal with a particular topic or want us to deep dive into a particular angle of any of the topics in our podcast series, please drop our national team a line and we'd be more than happy to do that or to reach out for bespoke discussions. I should say that I'm I have the pleasure of being joined by two of our senior practitioners in the class action space, Aoife Zureb, who's a partner in our Melbourne office, practicing in her specialism of class action litigation and particularly product liability class action litigation. And Melissa Gladstone Joyce, who's a senior lawyer sitting with me in the Sydney office, who is also um, has deep specialty in the class action space, particularly around corporate governance, class actions, shareholder claims and related re regulatory investigations. So the three of us and others were together last year when we were making a range of predictions about what 2022 would hold and beyond. And those that might remember back to that instalment in the podcast, we left a lot of square brackets for watching <laughs> this space because there was a lot of uh, future development left in the law. Since then, we've had a change in our government and that has meant potentially a very significant change in Australia's policy towards class action litigation and how it's prosecuted. And we'll talk about that today as well. Today's focus is really to see were any of our predictions accurate or were they wildly wrong and maybe we can reset and make some new ones. Um, so we're going to talk about um, in particular starting off our discussion around possibly the most controversial aspect of the developments in class actions in recent times, which has been the introduction of what we commonly refer to as contingency fees, but in Victoria is referred to as a group costs order, whereby the plaintiff's firm that's prosecuting the proceedings can extract by way of essentially a commission, a proportion of the recovery on behalf of group members, an American style contingency fee. Victoria is the only jurisdiction where that's permitted. And uh, a related issue is whether other jurisdictions will soon adopt that mechanism. So I thought with that launching point, Aoife, it might be useful given where you're sitting right now in the home state of contingency fees to just talk a little bit about that development and what you see over the next months and years. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jason. Um, so just a quick recap really on how this area has developed over the last six months um, or so. So in the first application for a group cost order last year, the court rejected an application seeking a 25% contingency fee. And in that case, the plaintiff's lawyers were acting on a no win, no fee basis. So in those circumstances, the court said, look, it's not appropriate or necessary to ensure that justice is done in the proceeding to make a group cost order um, in this particular context. The first group cost order was made then in November 21, and that was in the G8 class action, where the court ordered that the legal costs payable to the solicitors for the plaintiff and group members be calculated at 27.5% of the amount of any award or settlement that may be recovered in that proceeding. More recently, in the Arium class action, 
the court ordered that the legal cost payable to the plaintiff solicitors will be calculated as 40% of the amount of any judgment, award or settlement obtained in the proceeding. And in granting that order, the court took into account a range of factors, including the considerable risk as the court perceived that the funder would terminate its funding arrangement, the complexity, difficulty and risks in prosecuting the proceedings and the potential benefits for the group members. So a range of factors really playing in to that consideration as to whether or not it's appropriate or necessary to ensure that justice is done in the proceeding. Another interesting development over the last six months or so is the fact that the Victorian Supreme Court has in certain matters heard the application for the group cost order concurrent with the hearing of that carriage motion, um, which is really just particularly interesting to see um, and something that probably none of us would have predicted um, two or so years ago. Um, so Mel, there's obviously been quite a lot of discussion in terms of whether or not contingency fees are likely to spread into other jurisdictions, and um, particularly with the recent change of government and, and sort of interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's right. So as you've said, you know, Victoria is the only place at the moment which has been one of the key factors driving an increase in filings in that jurisdiction. You know, Victoria has now overtaken New South Wales um, as the, the, the state with the greatest filings ahead of New South Wales. Um, so one possible development now with the change of government is whether we will see contingency fees available at the federal level. Um, there's no proposal on the table yet, but the new Attorney General has signalled um, um, an openness to discussing this issue and to introducing it at the federal level. Um, which would see, of course, the federal court, you know, really continuing its lead um, as as the key jurisdiction for hearing Australian class action disputes. I mean, if that would occur, that would be a, a really significant change in the Australian class action landscape. Um, it's still really early days to see what's going to happen with the contingency fees and which kind of which type of cases they're going to be awarded. Um, as you've said, only two instances so far. All applications have been in respect of shareholder class action. So uh, the policy, one of the policy goals of whether it would create diversity in class actions with some perhaps previously uneconomic claims being pursued or, you know, social justice type claims being pursued. We haven't seen that yet. I'm sure whether we would see that if contingency fees were opened up um, at the national level. Um, one debate um, about I suppose the debate about contingency fees shifts somewhat now that we already have them available in one jurisdiction, but in not in others. So I know, Jace, this is something that you've been considering, this kind of jurisdictional imbalance on contingency fees. I don't know whether you wanted to say something about that now. That's right, Mel. The, um, there's two conflicting points that I wanted to make about that. One is to pick up what you just said, which is uh, we can have a debate about whether or not contingency fees are an appropriate mechanism in our jurisdiction for, for financing class actions. A separate debate, irrespective of how you feel about the first debate, is is it appropriate for um, the choice of jurisdiction to be dictated by how lawyers or funders are remunerated? Um, that feels unsatisfactory doctrinally, and it hasn't really been consistent with the way the class action jurisprudence in Australia has developed to date, which is broadly but not exclusively a national, almost a national common law. So that that's an issue, and that may be partly what is uh, going to influence policy debate in, with the Attorney General signalling, as you've said, Mel, uh, an appetite for maybe introducing contingency fees at the federal level. So, so irrespective of how you feel about them, there's an issue of consistency. And, and and the second point, which cuts against that one, is 
how do you feel about them? And um, and obviously the three of us act uh, exclusively for defendants, and so we have a certain uh, angle from which we pursue these things. But one of the justifications was that they promote access to justice, and I think the sub-justification was promoting a diversity of class action proceedings that would be pursued because they're uneconomical under the traditional funding models. We haven't seen that. Now it is very early days, but we haven't seen it. All of the group costs orders have been focused, as you said, on shareholder class actions, an area where there was not exactly an undersupply of class action services. Um, you just ask any defendant that's currently facing a carriage motion, as both of you are in, in the Victorian Supreme Court at the moment. They're, they're, and it's not limited to that jurisdiction. There is multiplicity across all our jurisdictions. So it's fair to say the broader issue of multiplicity, we might need to park for today, but that's the that's the most contemporaneous problem that I think as practitioners and our clients, we are facing in making class actions more efficient, cost-effective, and, and frankly, getting to the point of either a resolution or a, or a trial as, as quickly as, as possible. Back to you, Mel. Is there an argument with opening up contingency fees nationally that it might further drive some kind of competition in the funding market and have better better outcomes for group members in terms of the returns that they may get on any settlement or judgment? So that that's that is an argument that's put contrary to what I've just said uh, that it'll drive better outcomes through a competition between contingency fee funded vehicles and uh, litigation third party litigation funding vehicles. A couple of points on that. One is we'd have to balance the group member benefits from lower commissions against the group member and broader stakeholder detriment of the scourge, if I can call it that, of multiplicity. Because the interaction of contingency fees nationally, no doubt, will add to that impetus. And that's uns I think that's an unsavoury posture for the class action mechanism to be adopting. Um, and, and secondly, in the carriage motions that have pitted, a, a, a third party funded proceeding against a contingency fee proceeding. The contingency fee proceedings generally won. So I, I'm not, I think as a jurisprudence, we probably haven't quite worked out yet how we want to how we want to make our national practice as efficient as possible. And I haven't even mentioned that it's a little bit unsavory for our courts to be the clearinghouse for the competition around rates. It's not that they can't do that role, they do it very efficiently. Uh, it's just that that isn't traditionally the role of the court system, and and I'm not I'm not critical of the court one way, shape, or form. They're dealing with what's being presented to them, but that's an unsavoury st status for our class action environment, as as we've all experienced. There is something uncomfortable about things for communications involving the court, where um, competing bids effectively are being sent back and forth um, between um, different legal representatives. It, it's I agree, it's not. The, the functional role that our court is supposed to play in this regime. Yeah. Um, while we're on the topic of, I suppose, post-election developments, one of the things we spoke about in this end of year video was the very controversial 70-30 uh, um, bill, which was, um, if enacted, legislation that would impose a rebuttable presumption that any return to group members of less than 70% would be unfair and unreasonable. Um, controversial for lots of reasons, including whether those numbers were arrived at um, arbitrarily, whether it would um, increase the number of 
closed class actions and further exacerbate this multiplicity issue that Jason's been speaking about. Um, the Labor, well, the, the new Labor government was at the time a, a very strong um, opponent um, to that bill. So I, I don't think we need to say anything more other than it's likely that we will hear or see anything um, more about that bill um, in coming days. Um, Jay, sorry, if I don't know whether there was any other kind of post-election developments or impacts on the, the class action climate that you wanted to note. Perhaps just to, Aoife, just to add that um, when you look at when, when we were doing our last recording together, uh, although we we freshly, I think, just had contingency fees introduced, that was a brand new thing. We'd had a, a, a broadly speaking, an increased level of regulation for litigation funding. We'd had some relief introduced favouring corporate corporations on continuous disclosure. Um, and, and so the, the, politically, at least, the, the pendulum was swinging towards more restraint in respect of the growth of class actions. But as we sit here now, we've had a determination that most of that regulation for litigation funding probably won't come into effect given changes in the jurisprudence. We've got uh, an argument now that contingency fees will go national and and it's it's evident, at least at an interlocutory stage, that the new continuous disclosure laws aren't really dampening the appetite to run class shareholder class actions because all of the contingency fee cases in Victoria have been class actions, and they're pleading the we're we're, we're chronologically relevant. They're pleading the new regime. So, uh, as we I think the three of us predicted, that we really wasn't a dampener to to the way these claims are progressing. So, I think we're looking at a future where, despite the calls in the media for a con for the other outcome, I, I think we're going to see continued growth in class actions. And also just to add to that, I mean, I think um, sort of thinking ahead in terms of a perhaps less regulated regime than what it was looking like at the end of, of 2021, I think just the impact that will have on the nature as well as the volume of class actions and whether or not we do sort of see um, a further breakdown in terms of uh, the types of class actions that have been issued and, and whether or not they're sort of covering areas that we have long predicted are sort of in those sort of emerging areas, including the likes of ESG and cyber and data, those types of things. Maybe that's useful to say we, we do still have a lot of uncertainty in our class action landscape. The, 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 the chapter of how the law will approach continuous disclosure in Australia is still being written. Uh, in this country, as a, even following the conclusion of two first instance trials and an appeal of one of them, um, that the the full the full operation of the new continu continuous disclosure laws hasn't been interpreted by a court, uh, and and we haven't the story isn't yet written on on how the courts will approach common fund orders at the conclusion of a proceeding, or where contingency fee levels will land, and 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 uh, the the big. Um, theme that's developing from a subject matter perspective, EFA is uh, the, the increased focus on ESG risk across our client base and the broader Australian corporate client base. In one sense, ESG isn't new. It's another way of thinking about risk, but parts of it are new. Climate change risk is, is increasingly being developed. So do you want to make a comment in relation to ESG issues? Yeah, sure. And I think it's a it's an interesting sort of um, Point in terms of swinging from some of the procedural developments that we've observed to some more, say, sort of substantive developments. Um, so, despite a high volume of, as we've mentioned before, of shareholder class actions in Australia, relatively few have run to judgment. But two decisions have been handed down 
quite recently. And some of the takeaways from those decisions are particularly opposite to the ESG space and the issues that many entities, um, ex not exclusively, but particularly listed entities are currently grappling with when considering and weighing up those ESG risks. Um, so we've seen some clarification around, for example, um, a reasonable basis for representation. So there must be a reasonable process, there must be a reasonable outcome. Uh, we've seen guidance on the role that a tailored and bespoke disclaimer can play and some really interesting developments in the area of constructive opinions. And that's effectively information that's available to an officer within the company. Um, it's information from which the officer should have drawn a particular conclusion. And um, for the purposes of disclosure laws, the entity can in those circumstances be found to have been aware of that information, whether or not the conclusion is drawn. So really interesting exploration there of matters that are relevant across a range of areas, but particularly in that ESG space where a lot of entities are grappling with some really complex issues for the first time, particularly in that climate space um, that you've mentioned, Jason. Mel, um, th there are a few other developments on the horizon, including some new thinking and new approaches or perhaps some refreshing of old thinking around uh, important interlocutory steps like class closure. Did, is that something you, you wanted to add? Yeah, I'll just say a word briefly on the, I suppose, where we're at in the New South Wales Supreme Court, which is, um, despite the, the decision um, recently about class closure in the federal court, um, no real clarity um, in the New South Wales Supreme Court on the position there. The decision um, to previously um, not make available class closure orders remains the law in, in New South Wales, but Eva might talk about how the position has now changed just recently in the federal court. Yeah, and I think it's sort of going back to procedural developments in the last six months, but um, just a, again, sort of a quick recap on um, the uncertainty that Mel has uh, mentioned. So that really followed two decisions of the New South Wales Court of Appeal. There's considerable uncertainty about the availability of class closure in class actions filed in the federal court after those two decisions. And in February this year, the federal court provided much needed clarification and confirmed that pursuant to section 33x subsection 5, the court has power to order that notices be given to group members, requiring them to register their interest to participate in a settlement by a particular deadline. And here's the most important part, really effectively the court confirmed that that notice can also include confirmation that the settlement approval hearing, the applicant will seek to have an order uh, to have group members who have not opted out or registered and to be bound by that settlement. So really sort of putting beyond doubt that power question and that we had been grappling with in the wake of those Court of Appeal decisions from the New South Wales. So that, that's, a, that's a complexity and an important step for defendants in most class actions. So getting clarity in all jurisdictions may, may, may require some legislative change in due course, but in the federal court, at least there's some clarity in, in the immediate term. I guess that's a useful place to maybe wrap, start to wrap up our discussion uh, today. I feel like we've covered um, a lot of territory, probably at a, a relatively, you could scratch the surface of this and keep digging for a long time. Uh, the, the future um, holds continued uncertainty, but I, I think greater clarity around the fact that class actions aren't, as, as might have been predicted, and, and unfortunately, in some senses, aren't necessarily reducing in frequency of filing. My own view is current trajectory of one class action filed every week will continue and probably even increase. And I think we can expect that increase to be substantial if 
if there is a national adoption of contingency fees. The 70-30 legislation appears to be politically at least off the agenda uh, while we have the current government and uh, and we're seeing increased levels of competition, including some resilience from the traditional funding market. So what that's adding up to, I think, is an environment that's the soil is richer than it was a year ago for, for class action growth, and that has consequences for corporate Australia, which which our audience and we are only um, too, too acutely aware of. But the, the critical one, I think, will be moving into heightened focus on ESG issues that Ethel was talking about, the continuous disclosure implications of, of that move to a lower carbon environment and all that that entails in terms of emission targets, representations about green readiness and uh, that, that that in itself is, I think, a new species of area of risk that, that corporate Australia is already very alert to. What, what do you think, Mel and Aoife? Um, I suppose the other question is whether there's any other possible reforms on the table with the new government. There's been lots of reviews of the class action framework over the last you know, five years, um, lots of recommendations that haven't been taken up. I suppose it's a question whether the government takes a look at those. Certainly, it's clear from our discussion today that one area that is still in need of some reform is this issue of multiplicity and the you know overlapping duplicative class actions. Um, that'll be more so, um, more needed if uh, the, any plans ahead, go ahead for national um, contingency fees. Um, so that's something where we're continuing to watch um, as it's a, a big issue that's um, affecting our clients and the cases that we're involved in. Yeah, and I think just to pick up on your point before, Jason, I mean, we often look at our colleagues in the US and speak to our colleagues there about um, what they're saying. And certainly a number of years ago, they were talking to us about litigation in sort of that climate space rising tide sea level type litigation that just wasn't heard of here at the time um, and so I think sort of following those trends and identifying those trends in the US and um, thinking about how that might play out here and the legal framework here whether or not it can facilitate similar claims and um, it's going to be really sort of interesting area to watch over the next few months um, as well sort of that cyber data space and identifying the extent to which some recent developments and with respect, with respect to privacy, also find their way into um, the class action space as well. Well, that 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 those are both very interesting observations, and and I I think that exchange has been really um, illuminating for me. And uh, you you are both uh, sort of at the top of your profession at the moment in terms of the work that you're each doing in across a range of jurisdictions. So it's always great to get your insights from from the coalface of these matters in court. To our audience, we hope you have enjoyed our relaunch of the Herbert Smith Freehills Class Action Fireside series. And as I said at the opening, if you've got questions or follow up from these topics or anything that you'd like our team to address in the future, please drop us a line and our contact details will all be available at the same place that you're accessing this podcast. Thank you again, and uh, from myself and Mel and Aoife, we're very grateful for your uh, supporting of, of the podcast, and we look forward to engaging again uh, very soon. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business relevant to your business relevant to your business